Welcome back to the 200th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the use of fear in order to reach political ends, and then two articles talking about how the bureaucracy, how the government is overblown and spending is going a little bit crazy, and one of them comes from uh, our boy Ron Paul. So there will be some fun things to explore there. Uh, normally, I would say, and we'll end with our daily delight, and we're going to get into our daily debate, but just wanted to thank everybody who made it to 200 episodes. If you've watched most of them, listened to most of them, or you're just coming for the first time, thank you. It's been fun getting here, and we continue to provide more and more content, especially going into election season, but thank you for joining us. So, with all that said, let's jump into our daily debate. Is the use of fear a moral tactic in politics? So nowadays, fear is used by both sides a lot. Oh, it's going to be the end of democracy. Oh, they're going to come for your weapons. They're going to let all the immigrants come across the border, whatever topic it is. There's a lot of fear being used in politics. It's not just in the United States either. Uh, or, the, or even you know, talking about internal issues, it's also foreign issues. Ah, well, Putin's going to invade Poland next. That's why we have to defend Ukraine. Fear is a political weapon that is being wielded by everybody nowadays, and it's a, it's a great motivator. But is it moral to do so? Some people would argue that if you're using it to reach a proper moral ends, then sure. Other people would say no, just outright. It's not moral to use it even if your ends are justified. It's an interesting question. Throw it down there in the comments section. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. So our first article, it comes from Alternet. And it's an opinion piece with the headline that reads, Let Fear Be Your Greatest Motivator in 2024. So we talked just a second ago about the fear of everything going on, and they're speaking specifically about 2024. I did think it was funny that the top frame is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Donald Trump, and Putin all trying to elicit a certain type of fear, or maybe talk about people who are using fear to their advantage. It's one of those things, when I first read it, I was like, oh, of course, they're going to go down this angle. And I thought they were going to take an angle of the fact that, hey, you know, Donald Trump is eliciting fear in the people that he's trying to rally. But no, they actually use it a little bit differently. They actually try to go about it saying, you need to be fearful of what's coming down the way, which is ironic because you see people on one side or the other saying the other side is using fear, and then they use it themselves. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, call it out, you hypocrite. And, you know, hypocrisy is not always the, the worst thing. Sometimes you're a hypocrite to your friends because you want them to be better than you, your loved ones because you want them to be better than you. But, you know, in the media, it is ironic when they are hypocrites. And let's be clear, you know, not all the news sources are exactly the same. But if uh, I read another article from this person that says, oh, well, yes, the Republicans are using fear in order to meet their ends, then I will definitely comment on it in the future. But let's get to the first section. I was going to say paragraph, but they don't really write in paragraphs. They write in a little bit of longer sentences broken up. It's kind of like a New York Post article, if you know what those look like. Quote, the predominant reason we are staring straight down the barrel of a fight for our democ democratic survival is that we simply are not a great country. Frankly, I don't ever think we were, which in no way makes us exceptional, because I'm not sure any country in history has ever been great. We've been very good at times, pretty good at others, and lately, despite trending upward a bit, slightly damn below average. We are being, if we're being honest here, right, 
I walk around with a certain degree of fear most of the time. Fear that whether it is good, bad, or otherwise, that my country is but one election away from being a place that I can openly criticize to a place where I can be jailed for expressing critical opinions like the ones here. So, I mean, they have a certain a certain point, which is sometimes you are fearful of a possible administration change, of a change in government, because the one side or the other side is using that rhetoric that does elicit those sort of feelings, that raw emotion out of you. There's no doubt about that. Now, do I think that they're right in saying that the democratic norms will completely dissolve, that we will no longer be a democracy after one election or the next? Eventually that may happen. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. As much as I don't like the executive overreach of Trump or Biden or anybody who may get in there, I don't think we're that close to a dictatorship. And I think anybody that says that is genuinely naive or they've bought into the narrative or they're angling at something and they're trying to get you to believe something. Because at the end of the day, Donald Trump, yes, he's done some horrific things. Yes, he has used some rhetoric that is not acceptable. And he is a narcissist who truly believes that he won the 2020 election. And you could even 100% go to the argument that, well, he riled people up on January 6th. And I think you could say that. But did he also tell them directly to go and attack the Capitol? No, he did not. And people took his words out of context. He didn't want to give up power after the election, but he did step down. And if he was to win again, guess what? He only has one term left. So he couldn't even use the democratically elected argument going into 2028. If he was to say, no, I'm actually going to run again. I'm going to break the president precedent. I'm going to break the constitutional amendment that says a president can only uh, be in office for two terms after FDR. Now, I think that is naive to go down that route. And it is a fear tactic to imply that if one side wins, then democracy will go on exactly as it is. Whereas if the other side wins, we will fall victim to their authoritarian or their autocratic or their dictatorial types. Now, there was a recent example where someone, you know, Sean Hannity asked uh, by uh, Trump if he was going to be a dictator, and Trump jokingly responded on day one. And, of course, people on both sides have taken it up seriously. They're like, oh, hey, look, this is, this is what Trump is saying. You need to vote for this person in the primary. Or the Democrats are saying, say, this is exactly what Trump said. He said he's going to be a dictator on, on day one. But not after that, but on day one. So we have to keep him out. And... Yes, in my opinion, he was 100% joking. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew it would cause a firestorm. And he wants the attention in social media. He wants the attention on mainstream media. He is that much of an egotistical man that he wants to see the headlines, even if they're not positive for him. And you know why that is? Because it worked in his favor in 2016. When he was able to say, hey, the media are out to get me in 2016. They don't want me to win against Hillary Clinton. They can say the exact same thing in this election going up when there are so many attack articles against him, and he can rile up his base and make sure that the turnout is very, very high for him. So, yes, at the end of the day, 
He said something stupid, and it will be used as a fear cudgel in order to beat over the heads of every single American who is either watching the news or involved in the news one way or another. But that doesn't mean that we, as the citizenry, actually have to buy in to their fear na- uh, narrative. So there's another part that the author wants to go into here. Quote, I recently read a piece written by the great Thom Hartman that made all the sense in the world. Essentially, Hartman is saying that for all the grossness and warts, MAGA is a movement. And even if it's hideous bow movement, it's still a movement nonetheless. Movements, by definition, move people. They move people to act in good or terrible ways. They'll never get a better example of that than January 6, 2021. You have thought that would be the end of Trump forever, but thousands who attacked our country that day have gone to jail. Except it hasn't been the end. Millions of Republicans, many of them MAGA, watched that day in horror and knew good and damn well it all had finally gone too far. Hell, the members of Trump, Trump's repulsive family knew it had gone too far and were begging their disgusting father to call off the dogs. Instead, he did nothing but rage for three hours while a Capitol burned and law enforcement officers were beaten with flags. I should ha- it should have all ended for MAGA at the end of the ice-cold January with a new administration and a new attorney general. Instead, one of the greatest mistakes in American history slowly and painfully began to unfold. And what they go on to say is that uh, while Merrick Garland didn't get in there and he didn't directly prosecute Trump, he didn't go straight after him, he didn't try to get rid of the MAGA scourge, he didn't try to completely eliminate Donald Trump as an option. And he goes on, and you could hear the language he's using, or sorry, she's using in this case, which is this grossness, this warts, kind of a disease kind of talking voice, the repulsive family that knew uh, law enforcement were beaten with flags. The He went on to rage for three hours. And all of this language has so much vitriol and hate behind it, even if it's factual statements. There are different ways to frame it. There are different ways to go about it. And this is exactly the fear-based stuff that I was talking about. It's trying to elicit a special emotional reaction, not just from the message, but also in the way the message is conveyed. And this is stuff that you need to look out for. Whether or not you like Donald Trump, whether or not you like Joe Biden, when you hear somebody saying that Joe Biden is negligent, that he is corrupt, these sort of things are trying to elicit and create mental connections between the name of Joe Biden and corrupt. I'm not saying that Trump isn't guilty of his crimes. I'm not saying that Joe Biden isn't guilty of his alleged crimes. I'm not making a outright statement on either one of those. What I'm saying is the connection between the words that are used, the framing of every single story in order to sway you as a person that is reading the media, it is no longer about informing a person, especially going into an election year. It is about embedding a particular image about a candidate onto the people so that the people who are giving you the news can get the outcome that they want. Maybe I'm being overly cynical tonight. Maybe they are truly good-hearted people who just absolutely hate Trump, they absolutely hate Biden, and they just don't want to see him in office, or they just don't like his policies, it's purely principled, and they want to get him out. But either way, 
they are still framing it so, so obviously, and yet we just bypass it. We're like, oh yeah, we know the framing, but every single time they use particular words, every single time a story comes back up, it reinforces that image in our head, and they're trying to create images that have specific things associated with them as well. So you're associating a candidate with an image, and then that image is associated with a feeling or a particular view of the situation. Corrupt equals get out of office. Uh, dangerous, hateful, disease language such as uh, gross wart or repulsive. These are supposed to elicit disgust in you. You're supposed to be disgusted at MAGA. You're supposed to want to get corruption out of the government, so you want to get Joe Biden out. And these are still fair narratives. They're playing on those base instincts that exist within every single human in order to elicit that emotional response rather than the logical one and make you decide on these particular issues and these particular feelings rather than stepping back and saying, hey, okay, what is going to best help me and my family? Is it going to be Joe Biden's policies? Is it going to be Trump's policies? Is it going to be Robert F. Kennedy or Nikki Haley or DeSantis or Marianne Williamson or I believe Dean Phillips is still in the race? Is it going to be any of those people's uh, policies that are actually going to help me and I'm going to voice my opinion that way? No, it's this is disgust. And if it's not going to be Biden, it's going to be Trump. If it's not going to be Trump, it's going to be Biden. They're creating a binary so you are locked into a choice rather than having you fully explore your options and explore beyond the hateful rhetoric that they use in order to engender fear in the populace. So if you can't tell, I have a very specific opinion about using fear as a political tool. And is it expedient? Does it work? Uh, do political actors use it because they're just trying to do their job? Sure. Not trying to hate on them for doing it. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Do what you got to do to survive. But that doesn't mean that it's morally acceptable. It doesn't mean that I have to sit here and fully endorse it. It means I get to sit here and criticize it because I think that it is morally reprehensible. So that answers the daily debate for me if you've made it this far. So we're going to jump to our second article. That comes from Eurasia Review, and this one is a op-ed, once again an opinion, from a different person this time, which is Ron Paul. And it reads, the headline, Congress's gift to America this Christmas. And, you know, honestly, pretty, pretty juicy gift. Lots of little layers here to this gift. There's no doubt about that. Does that mean that, you know, the American people are going to enjoy all of them? Maybe not. But uh, let's get into Mr. Ron Paul's opinion here. Quote, with constitutionalists like Tom Massey on the House Rules and Means Committee, Speaker Johnson made an unusual move of bringing the National Defense Authorization Act under suspension of the rules, which bypasses the Rules Committee, meaning that he had to bypass Massey and his approval in committee, but required two-thirds of the House to pass the bill, which would be almost all of the Democrats who were basically all on board, and more than, what, like... A fifth of the Republicans were needed to get this passed if every single Democrat voted for it. So you can see how Mr. Speaker here, Mr. Johnson, was trying to jump around the rules to make sure it got past committee. And then he was like, okay, guys, we're going to just vote on this, get over it. We need to get this thing passed. So what was in the bill? Quote, considering that Speaker Johnson tossed into the must-pass bill yet another extension of Section 702 of the FISA Act, it's unsurprising that he wanted to rush the bill through without the possibility of amendment. Section 702 allows the government to intercept and retain without a warrant the communications of any American who is in contact with a non-U.S. citizen. 
it is clearly a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which is supposed to protect Americans against unreasonable search and seizures. So he goes on to explain how Section 702 was legalized under uh, George W. Bush during the War on Terror. And this is a, a provision that, while it doesn't seem that terrible at first, because it's like, oh, well, what non-U.S. citizen am I, am I speaking with? Does this actually affect me? Uh, imagine you just happen to uh, be in any sort of communication with a, a trip planner outside of the United States. They can get access to that. Imagine there's someone who's just here on a visa and they're technically not a citizen and he's one of your best friends and you're shooting some text back and forth that, you know, they may be unsavory. You're talking about something that maybe you wouldn't want anybody else to see and they can intercept that. And imagine how this power can be exploited and how they can kind of, uh, you know, wiggle around the rules. If the surveillance system is already in place where they can intercept any calls from non-citizens, that means they can identify citizens as non-citizens, first of all, and when you're communicating with them. All it takes is one person who wants to abuse their power in order to start looking through other messages if they already have the potential to discern where your messages are coming from and only select certain ones in order to read then, like I said, that means they can obviously see most of your messages. So it's just an unwieldy amount of power that is handed over to government agencies and the bureaucrats that operate them and the intelligence agencies that use this different information or just sit there and listen in case anything does happen. So I, you know, it makes me hesitant, hesitant and reticent to be approving of a section of a bill that was passed over what, 15 years ago at this point, and it's still in place in order to defend our national security. Um, maybe it is. Maybe it actually is vital to national security. Then prove it to me again. Don't just pass the same bill. You know, let it relapse, let it sunset, and let's put bring something up that's new so we can reinvigorate this conversation rather than just kind of having a half conversation that says, uh, you know, we're not going to amend anything, we're just going to let it pass as it was, because that's the easy way to go about it, rather than having a long conversation about adjusting the way we do these things and actually possibly making a digital bill of rights in that conversation. But, you know, I've been talking about that a lot over the last week and for a few months now, so maybe I should just drop it, because, you know, if you haven't heard the context on that, go back and listen to, I believe it's the AI episode from probably... Whew, what, six months ago at this point, where we talked about a digital bill of rights and the uh, metaverse and all these different tactics that companies will use to exploit your data when you're in there. But that's enough on that one. There is one more quote that I wanted to read you from Mr. Ron Paul here. Quote, the NDAA also contained a $6 million gift to the corrupt government of Ukraine as opposition to further spending on Ukraine's failed war with Russia increases in the House, Republican leadership decided to add what may be the last parting gift to the military-industrial complex. As with most foreign assistance, however, Ukraine will likely see very little of this money, but it will be laundered through the military contractors and lobbyists who line every corner of the Beltway. The NDAA also pushed us further towards confrontation with China, authorizing more than $100 million to train Taiwan's military and a further $9 billion to continue sending U.S. military ships to harass China in its backyard. And while I uh, may disagree a little bit with Ron Paul on this one, I definitely don't think that we should be spending our money in Ukraine, not as much as we are. Um, I, there are different uh, 
expressions, there are different points of view that I agree with, which it could very well be in our strategic interest in order to whittle down Russia. But have we actually done that? Have we actually whittled them down and made them weaker? Or have we solidified support around Putin, increased their industrial base, and increased the passion that these people have in order to defend their country in a revivified nationalism? Even if that's not 100% legitimate, if it's kind of ginned up by the propaganda and all the other information that stays within Russia and is given to its population, it still had that effect. So have we actually reached that other strategic goal of winding down and destroying Putin and his military and kind of destroying the sentiment within his nation that he's a great leader. I don't know if that's true anymore. So especially now we're having a reconsideration or we should at least reconsider the Ukraine war. Now, on Taiwan and China, I don't like being directly involved in war. I don't like directly supporting war either and propping up other people's militaries. You have a right to defend your own sovereignty. We can sell you weapons. Our contractors can send you different munitions. We can do loan programs with you in order to pay for those things. But we should not basically be propping up your war effort by funneling a whole bunch of money to you. That is the position on Ukraine. But there is a difference in creating deterrence and strengthening and providing and working with our allies to strengthen the military in a certain country before anything happens, to make it harder for another country to invade, to actually deter them from stepping up and escalating. I think that is a worthwhile protection, especially with a place like Taiwan, which is definitely in our national interest. Is Ukraine in our national interest? Possibly there's some oil interest there, you could say. It's one of the largest, them and Russia are one of the largest producers of wheat, so having a war between them and having to pull resources away from producing that those crops, you could, you could say there's a national interest there, and that's why I was okay with part of the argument initially to help Ukraine out, but then it kind of just turned into a funnel system where we're just like, oh no, we'll just keep giving you money, no problem which we don't know if they'll be able to repay. It was kind of like what we did with Britain during uh, World War One and World War Two, which is we just kept you know, giving out loans, very generous loans, but eventually we were able to leverage that to our advantage. But if Ukraine's not able to pay those loans back and they actually default because they don't have a strong national economy like Taiwan does that is producing some of the best semiconductors out there, that's a different equation in my opinion. I think there's a different calculus there. I don't have as a straightforward as a principle stand as no no we can't intervene in any we can't support any wars we can't support any other nation outside of ourselves in order to protect our interests out there like some people in the libertarian wing of things would now am i going to directly endorse sending our own troops there to die no i think that's different you know their every own country should battle for their own sovereignty but that doesn't mean they can't have allies and support from the outside monetarily and, you know, maybe that props up the loss of their own citizens, but that doesn't fall on us. That falls on the party that is actually going out and fighting and choosing to continue fighting and be in that war in the first place or defending themselves and choosing to continue to defend themselves rather than giving up and giving in to the other power that is attacking them. So with Taiwan, I think a deterrent strategy where we're giving them, let's be clear, $9 billion is not going directly to them. It's going to uh, keep some military presence in the South China Sea that the Chinese government claims as their own. 
that that is a, a good chunk of change. There's no doubt about that. But once again, if it's a deterrent, if it can stop lives from being lost on China's side, on Taiwan's side, keep from destroying the global supply chain for semiconductors, which are practically in everything, and that's why there has been this fear of a semiconductor problem if Taiwan's evaded. You've heard that plenty of times, and that's also why Biden put a lot of money into the CHIPS Act. And instead of you know encouraging companies to just be more competitive and get the job done here, he had to juice it up a little bit with a little bit of extra government subsidies, and we'll see if that pans out. But that's why we have started to build some more chips here, and we've had a more diversified supply chain trying to build in other places than Taiwan. But guess what the second largest semiconductor and chip producer is? China. So if you have number one and number two at war, and they're using them as strategic bargaining chips in order to you know, maybe back down the United States from supporting Taiwan, or Taiwan saying, you know, you have to keep supporting us, otherwise we're not going to give you these latest chips, or we're going to create tariffs that make it more expensive for your companies to buy them. We don't want to see that. So deterrence with military strength and increasing the power of Taiwan and the training there and showing China that we're willing to stand on a particular hill on this one, I think is a good thing. But, you know, I could very well be wrong. I may have to work with my moral precepts a little bit. Maybe China invading Taiwan is completely inevitable and we're just making it worse for the Taiwanese people. That, that could be a possibility. But as I see it now, as I see the state of everything going on there, and I see the military might and deterrence force working, especially with seeing some of the things that, you know, we were willing to help Ukraine and Israel. Uh, Afghanistan was a moment of weakness, but showing that we do stand up for our allies, even though Taiwan's a little bit of a special exception. Maybe that's enough of a deterrent with this extra funding and this extra training for China to say, okay, hey, we're not going to go after Taiwan. We're just going to have to live with this for a little bit longer. So that gives us a little bit more time to build out our chip infrastructure here, and then maybe we can reevaluate the strategic positioning of Taiwan, even though they're going to keep the latest technology for themselves so they, they know they still have some edge over us and something to lower over us in order to say, hey, no, 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 don't, uh, don't leave us to China. We have this new chip that is better than anything we're producing in your country or anything you can produce, so uh, make sure that you, you protect us. That's always a possibility. So this last article, it comes from the Washington Examiner. It is also talking about a lot of extra spending that's going on in the government. And the headline reads, the administrative state must be brought under control. And I'm just going to read one big quote from the beginning here, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit further. But I don't want to spend too much time on this one because there are similar notes here, but they're taking a little bit of a different angle. Quote, federal debt will never be brought under control, nor will government intrusiveness be curtailed unless people rein in the administrative state. Fortunately, some good suggestions on how to do so are published by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a think tank dedicated to the goal of freedom for all people and businesses from unnecessary regulations. On November 29th, CEI released 10,000 Commandments, a annual snapshot of the federal regulatory state which collects massive data on the problem and proposes thoughtful ways to ameliorate it. Most of the recommendations are superb, and we would add a few of our own. So they go on to talk about, hey, you need to set up special committees in order to limit the amount of regulations that can be put through to examine old regulations and see if they still stand up. But I wanted to jump to one of the ones that wasn't recommended by CEI. Quote, all agency rulemaking is governed by law passed in 1946 called the Administrative Procedure Act. 
Its requirements for multi-step rulemaking now are antiquated and clunky, to say the least, which is one reason why it can take years to get the permits needed for new highways or bridges. Many of the rules governing federal employment remain in place from the Pendleton Act of 1883, amended by President Jimmy Carter's less than successful Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. The resulting system, exacerbated by federal worker unionization under a separate 1912 law and two presidential executive orders, makes it nearly impossible to fire incompetent, lazy, or even significantly misbehaving federal workers. So, that's what they got at towards the end there. And yes, this is something we need to not just limit the rules that the administrative state can put out, but we actually need to limit the people that are in the administrative state. We have to treat it like a business. If you have someone who is not hitting their benchmarks, if you have somebody that is not reaching their goal, if their regulation is not reaching the heights to which they protested that it would, and their regulation is falling flat, it's actually putting more costs on businesses than it's saving in whatever it's trying to do, whether it be an environmental regulation, a safety regulation, then one, fire the person that came up with it, the whole team that came up with it, and two, repeal the regulation and put in a new one with a more competent team behind it. You know, but no, it doesn't act like a uh, company. They say, oh, well, I guess we, we chalked up the calculations wrong. Hey, Jimmy, do you want to try that again? Do you want to amend this regulation? How, well, you know what? Actually, keep that one in place, but let's just make a new one to be more stringent. So we need to really address this administrative state and the bind they have over the way that government operates. A lot of the NDAA stuff that stayed in there and a lot of these different programs that were not cut were more than likely the bureaucratic state saying, no, 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 don't take away our powers. Don't don't take away the abilities that we have and these powers given to us and these regulations that we've passed in order to have some sort of say in Washington. No, 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 don't get rid of those. We'll uh, you know, just pass it and we can address it on our own. And then it never gets addressed because those same people are there doing the exact same thing over and over and over again. So that's enough on those two. Let's jump to our daily delight that comes from the Miami Herald. A German Shepherd has sweetest reaction to getting a puppy for Christmas. And I'll tell you now, these two are absolutely adorable. Quote, the adorable moment when one German Shepherd got the ultimate Christmas gift has been melting hearts online. So this is a German Shepherd named Zeus, and he met his new little sister, Luna. Quote, the video recorded a year ago begins with Zeus displaying a heightened sense of anticipation. His keen eyes fixated on the door, signaling that something extraordinary was about to unfold. As the door swings open, Zeus is introduced to Luna, a small black German Shepherd puppy. In the caption, the, po- the poster, a.k.a. the person posting it, wrote that it was the sweetest reaction they had ever seen. And if you want to see any of the photos or videos of Zeus and Luna or read any of today's article, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. A little bit less scripted, not so many quotes, just kind of off the top of the head. Uh, things I'm reading, things like that. And like I said before, thank you for staying with me or you know listening to the 200th episode. We've come a long way, even though I feel like there's a lot more I can prove. There are new segments that I'm trying to think up because at this point we've been doing the same thing for a long time. We need to evolve. But um, like I said, thanks for joining me for this one. And with all that out of the way, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>